Episode 135, Paisley Shawl. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 15th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. Some clothes are made for traveling. Elizabeth Rupert's Paisley shawl was a good example. In 1854, little Elizabeth found herself wrapped in a Paisley shawl as her father fled Virginia, headed to Kansas. Years later, Elizabeth used that same shawl to swaddle a grandchild for one of the most iconic events of the American West. Join curator Laurel Fritch and me as we examine a paisley shawl from Leavenworth, Kansas. Find out why this girl was so partial to her material. Then we go behind the scenes with a museum intern to learn more about the museum's newest online resource, Kansapedia. And Find out just what exactly a museum intern does all day. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to Valhalla, the heavenly realm of Norse gods. Did White once don chainmail and a horned helmet for use at a local Renaissance festival? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Paisley Shawl. Good afternoon, Laurel. Good afternoon. Today we are discussing a red Paisley Shawl brought to territorial Kansas as part of a rather um, unbelievable story. <laughs> the shawl is a massive piece of woven wool, which is kind of what a shawl is. Um, and it's got sort of a central, not quite, but sort of a fleur-de-lis design. And it's surrounded by a bunch of repeating geometric kind of kidney bean shapes. Yeah, it kind of looks like a, a weird form of a teardrop or something like mm -hmm. that. This shawl is considered a paisley shawl because of its design. I mean, that's, that's why it's called a paisley shawl. Paisley is a term that's used for this particular pattern. It's used in a lot of different types of clothing. Right. Um, and it was popular during the Victoria era, and in fact, it still is today. It wouldn't be unusual to go down to uh, to go down to Target or something and find a shirt with a paisley design on it. Mm -hmm. uh, the shawl itself kind of resembles a Persian rug, yet paisley actually references a town in Scotland. Uh, where exactly did the paisley tradition originate? Um, originally, they think that it had to do with uh, Celtic art. Um, a lot of that sort of swirl pattern and the concept of circles and things like that. Um, but really that's, that style um, sort of died out in Europe um, around the time of the Roman Empire's influence there. Um, it didn't completely die out, obviously it's here with us today. Sure. Um, and um, that motif and that sort of design continued to flourish in a lot of different forms of artwork um, in primarily India. It was really first used on shawls in Kashmir, and I'm sure that's a term that a lot of people have heard. It's now mostly associated with a type 
of material. But Kashmir is actually a, a region of India. Mm-hmm. It's on the border between Pakistan and India. When the British started going over there and trading with the Indian people, this particular pattern came back to Britain. It was imported by the East India Company. And this was mm, around the, the mid-18th century, so somewhere around the mid-1700s. Mm-hmm. And um, boy, it didn't take long for that shawl pattern to be popular. Um, and almost instantly, they ran out of supply of these kinds of scarves. And then it obviously became very expensive. Um, mm-hmm. So you're saying these suppliers in India were uh, were outstripped by the demand. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, but demand was high and the British people wanted to sell their stuff. Um, so they started imitating this style in a lot of diff- different textile manufacturers. And this was all around, you know, the time of the Industrial Revolution. So they really had the, the industry to produce these. And they ended up being able to sell them for about a tenth of the price. Sure, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it, you would save your cost on shipping. If you can produce it locally and you don't have to ship it from India. Exactly. All of a sudden, you know, all of these Indian shawl companies and manufacturing centers just sprang up all over the place in primarily Edinburgh, Norwich, and a little town called Paisley, Mm. um, which is where we end up getting that term from. In 1854, a baby named Elizabeth Rupert arrived in Leavenworth, Kansas with this Paisley shawl. Who was baby Elizabeth and what was she doing in territorial Kansas? Well, this is a really great story. It's really juicy, so listen up, everybody. Um, It really sort of starts with her parents. Her father was named Edmund, Edmund Rupert, and her mother was Barbara, and both of them were German immigrants to Alexandria, Virginia. And it so that's where they're coming from, was Virginia. Right. They after they arrived from Germany, they settled in Alexandria, Virginia, um, and that was about 1850 or so. And um, then they had little baby Elizabeth, but unfortunately, Elizabeth's mother became very ill, and she ended up passing away. Um, Um, Elizabeth's grandparents, so this would have been her mother's parents, they decided that Edmund wasn't a fit father and they wanted to take Uh Elizabeth from from Elizabeth's father, Edmund. Um, So he wrapped her up in this shawl, took whatever he could, and started fleeing across the state. Mm -hmm. And Barbara's family pursued him and pursued him all the way into Western Virginia, which would now be Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And um, Edmund had relatives there, so he was sort of staying there, but it didn't take him long to figure out, well, they also know that I have relatives there. So he basically had to rest there for a little bit, resupply, and just keep heading west. And he ended up out in Leavenworth, Kansas. With these, um, did the in-laws, did they chase him they did, all they the stopped, way they stopped, they stopped right about where his relatives were. And his relatives, you know, as far as we know, you know, probably didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, you know, it wasn't long after he arrived in Kansas until the Civil War, sort of all everything associated with that started happening. Mm -hmm. And um, so here he was, you know, a single father, and uh, he was going to have to go off to war. Um, So what he ended up doing was taking Elizabeth and placing her in the care of the Catholic Sisters of Charity Convent, um, because he just didn't know what to do with her. Which is located in Leavenworth. It is located in Leavenworth. And he was one of the fortunate people who was able to come back. He survived the war. And uh, after he 
came back to Kansas. He met a lovely woman who was also a German immigrant, uh -huh. and they got married. And um, then they had a few more children. Um, so then Elizabeth had some younger siblings that she could play with. I find it pretty amazing um, that little Elizabeth, that Edmund, brought her out to the frontier in 1854. Because in 1854, that is really early for Kansas. That's right. The, the only thing out here probably would have been Fort Leavenworth. That's right. And that was really no place for a newborn baby. Absolutely. But I guess when you're, and that's probably why he came here, because he was on the run from the from the in-laws. Exactly, yeah. I mean, there were not a lot of people out here at that time. Um, the story of the Paisley Shawl certainly doesn't end there. By all accounts, Elizabeth led a pretty normal life mm -hmm. from, from there on. Eventually, though, her daughter and son-in-law uh, pulled out the shawl for another amazing event in Western Settlement, the Cherokee Strip Land Rush. Uh, how were the Ruperts involved in, in the Land Rush? At the very young age of 19, or at least we would consider it young these days, Elizabeth married a German immigrant, surprise, surprise, um, named Henry Voigt, and uh, they had a whopping 10 children. Can you believe that? Um, and uh, their eldest one, Meleta, is how I believe it's pronounced. It's sort of an unusual spelling. Um, she married someone who, again, was a German immigrant. Man, these Germans are all over Kansas. Um, named uh, Gustav Ebert. And they had a son named August the following year. Um, this would have been 1893. Um, that very same year, Gustav decided that he was going to head down south to the Cherokee Strip of Oklahoma. And um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. Um, the Cherokee Indians, they sold their land to the federal government, who then decided to make that land available for settlement. So the Cherokee Indians owned this land strip in Oklahoma. It was sold to the federal government. Now the federal government was going to essentially sort of sell it off to these potential settlers. Right. And it was all, I mean, the, the land, it was, it's Oklahoma today. But right. prior to that, it was known as Indian Territory. Correct. And at that point, Oklahoma was kind of transitioning into Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, and and so the Cherokee sold their land, or they were kind of pushed to sell their land. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, it ended up a bunch of land opens up, right? Right, right, exactly. So then tons and tons of settlers from really all over the nation, they headed down um, to wait by literally uh, like a fence line for the day that this land would be available for them to run out and claim as theirs and um, settle. So um, they were called Sooners, which is why we, we get that um, term batted about for um, people from Oklahoma, which is kind of interesting. Because they wanted to get there sooner. They wanted to get there sooner. That's right. Sooner is always better. Um, so it was on, on uh, September 16th, which was actually the largest land rush in all of U.S. history, um, that all of these Sooners, they just ran in and uh, claimed their land. And I was really surprised to learn that half of those people, almost half of those people were from Kansas, um, which I thought was a, a bit unusual. But uh, among all of those settlers that claimed land that day, Gustav Ebert is listed in the rolls as one of the people that claim land. And uh, he claimed land in Allison, which is in Garfield County, Oklahoma. So if anybody listening is from Allison, you know, hey, there's a bit of your, your uh, town's heritage right there. Well, after, after Gustav 
claimed his land, he headed back to Kansas to pick up the rest of his family. Um, and before they decided to take off, um, Elizabeth decided to wrap her little grandson, August, in that same paisley shawl that um, she was wrapped in when she migrated. And um, they all headed down to Oklahoma. So it's just this amazing story of this shawl being handed down through the generations and being involved in these, always being on the frontier of, of the of the Western United States. It's just a great story. The shawl is uh, worn out along the edges and mended in several places. It kind of adds some uh, a nice character quality to it. Uh, was it common to pass down pieces of apparel like this? I mean, really, it's kind of basically it's a hand-me-down. Isn't that kind of frowned upon in women's fashion to receive a hand-me-down? I think that because this one is just so beautiful, I mean, it, it's, it's just amazing how the colors have lasted so long. Um, I'm not entirely certain it would be a surprising um, that this one has lasted so long and sort of been kept special. Plus, I think um, because this was an item that probably was one of the only things that Elizabeth had of um, potentially her mother, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, for that sentimental reason, she might have held on to it and put it in a special space place as opposed to using it every single day. Um, so I think for those reasons, it might make sense that this one was sort of held down and reserved a little bit and uh, used on special occasions. And um, for example, in a very uh, amazing photograph of little August at the age of, I want to say maybe two, sure enough, in the background of the photo, you see that shawl draped over the edge <laughs> of the chair. Um, so, you know, it just seems like it was one of those things that was uh, very important emotionally for its owners, and therefore it was used for more special occasions. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Laurel, thanks for telling us about Elizabeth Rupert and her Paisley shawl. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Today's Kansas Quiz regards Oklahoma, Kansas, and football. As mentioned in today's interview, a lot of Kansans have moved to Oklahoma. So which of the following native Kansan pro football players did not play college in Kansas, but instead played for Oklahoma State University? Was it A, Jordy Nelson of the Green Bay Packers, B, Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions, or C, Gail Sayers of the Chicago Bears. I'll be back in just a few ticks of the clock with the answer. Someday, Kansapedia will be the repository of all Kansas trivia and fun facts. Much like other knowledge-sharing websites, Kansapedia content will be user-provided. First, though, a structure must be established, which means someone has to research, edit, and write hundreds of starter articles. Today, we go behind the scenes with Christina Gaylord. She is the 2011 Ripley intern at the Kansas Historical Society, and she is laying the foundation for Kansapedia. So tell us a little bit about uh, what is Kansapedia? Is it just an online encyclopedia about Kansas, or will it be something more? It is an online encyclopedia. It has the potential to be more. Right now we do, we have articles that it's an interpretation of the historic past, that 
uh, viewers can interpret themselves and add to if they'd like to. Your job is to generate content, basically, for Kansapedia. Uh, how do you do this? Are you just editing articles that already exist, or do you seek out new knowledge? Some articles are already written. There's something that was done for a publication or something, and I do. I go in and edit it and tailor it specifically for whatever the article topic is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just a topic that I get the name of and research it and write it from scratch. So you may end up going to our library and archives, doing, a, doing some research, reading through some articles or something. Right. I spend quite a bit of time there. Uh, often the stories you document are kind of fragmented, you know. Um, for example, you recently were telling me uh, about an article that you came across referencing bathtubs in the state house. Um, how did you uncover this story? And uh, you got you got to tell us a little bit about <laughs> how bathtubs about bathtubs in the state house. So I was looking for art in the state house, completely unrelated. <laughs> but in this book of clippings, I saw an article titled "Bathing in the State House" and couldn't pass it up. And sure enough, as a political campaign once upon a time, a governor had said that if elected, he would install a bathtub and citizens could come in and bathe in his office. Nice. Yep. Okay, it's a yeah. weird promise. <laughs> And he won, and so he installed the bathtubs, and it actually became a very common thing. A lot of judges started having them put in so they could have their own baths at night. Do you, so no idea if those bathtubs still exist in the state house. They've all been removed at this point. Well, that's good. It's good. We don't really need bath bathing going on. I think that's kind of interesting because, I mean, basically, Kansapedia is it is a wiki, you know, or it's something like wiki or Wikipedia, which takes a lot of fragmented bits of information and kind of links them and to build an overall picture. And that's essentially, I mean, you're, you're at the front end of that, taking fragments and building them and linking them together. Will the general public, uh, will the general public be able to someday contribute to Kansapedia? They can. Actually, now they can currently go and add submission of information. There's a lot of political bios that we have that currently don't have a lot of information. We'd love for people to go and, if they have it, add it. And the way to contribute that is, is basically there's an email address where you can, you know, you, the data you, you, you can email in, right? Correct, yes. It's, it's a little different than your average Wikipedia where there's a process that you can edit things online on the Wikipedia site. Correct. That's all very advanced. I mean, that's pretty advanced programming. Right. Um, so ours is it's essentially the same thing. You're still contributing, and you will get credit, correct? Yes. If you send an article that yes, says the author and it gives <laughs> you credit. So say I'm just your average Internet user, and I want to check out Kanzapedia. Um, how do I get there, and then kind of how do I use the system? It's actually really easy. If you go on to the Kansas History website and then look under the Research tab on the far right side, it'll say Kansapedia. You just click that. And then it's got a couple of options from there. It's got featured articles on the page, but you can also search, and then you can look. It has alphabetical listings, thematic listing, people, places, all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty easy to manipulate, pretty easy to find your way around. Yeah. You are the 2011 John Ripley intern. Congratulations, in case you didn't know, you are. Um, which means you're still in school right now, right? Correct. Well, not right now, because you're summer break. Actually, I'm taking summer courses. Okay. Uh, what university do, do you attend, and what is, what is your area of study? I'm a Washburn student, and I'm a history major. Washburn University is based here in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, you're a history major. At this point, how many pages have you written and uh, give us an example of some of your favorite things or bits of information you've uncovered so far. So far, I've done over 100 pages. And some of my favorite bits are, there's one titled The Amazon Army that's about a women's revolt in Pittsburgh, Kansas, where they threw pepper at scab workers. 
So they were just called Amazon because they were women, early, Pretty much. early yeah. advocates of labor or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were miners' wives that were fed up. So The Amazon army, is that what you call mm-hmm. them? Yep. Well, that's complimentary. <laughs> All right. Well, Christina, thanks for telling us about uh, your internship experience and Kansapedia. I'm Laurel Fritch, and I've returned to help you impress your friends at that summer barbecue by providing the answer to today's Kansas quiz. Which of the following native Kansan pro football players played for Oklahoma State University? Was it A, Jordy Nelson of the Green Bay Packers, B, Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions, or C, Gail Sayers of the Chicago Bears? The answer is B, Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders is a Wichita native, and he spent his college career at Oklahoma State, where he won the Heisman Trophy in 1988. Wichita native Gail Sayers played college football at the University of Kansas, and Riley, Kansas native Jordy Nelson played for Kansas State University. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. And Education Specialist Abby Perrin. Hi. Today we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Valhalla, the mythical realm of Viking VIPs. Abby, would you like to provide a little background on Valhalla? Sure, I would. Well, Valhalla is the great meeting hall of Odin, the primary god of Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. For the Vikings, who were an ethnic group that resided in Norway, Sweden, Iceland, and Denmark. Although they weren't named Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Denmark <laughs> yeah, at the they, time. I don't, I don't think they had those names back then. <laughs> but the, for them, the universe was divided into nine worlds, with Asgard being the heavenly realm of the gods. There, Odin ruled from inside Valhalla. Mm-hmm. So if we were to compare Norse mythology to Roman mythology, then Odin would be the promiscuous Zeus and Valhalla his Mount Olympus. See? Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's parallels everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, Norse mythology was most influential around 500 AD, but it was assimilated with the arrival of Christianity. In the 18th century, belief systems resurfaced in the Romantic movement, which is illustrated very well illustrated by the composer uh, Richard Wagner mm-hmm. and author Edgar Allan Poe. Today, fragments of Norse mythology are found in works like Harry Potter and Marvel's Thor. Such right. fine pieces of literature uh, high, that we're familiar art. with. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> if it's in Harry Potter, it must be good. Yes. Uh, Wagner and Thor. Right. You know, they go hand in hand. Sure. <laughs> uh, thank you, Abby. And now on to the game. Uh, as a contestant, Abby, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Valhalla. Mm-hmm. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Oh, a challenge. Nikayla, mm-hmm. you will go first. Okay, well... As Abby just mentioned, the idea of Valhalla has had a lot of influence on modern culture, and one example of that is Wagner's opera cycle, The Ring of the Nibelung, which I probably mispronounced that, but (laughs) at least I didn't try to say it in German. Um, (laughs) While known for his work in the arts, Wagner also influenced literature and philosophy. His theories on uh, the association between dreams and mental health 
were a concept that would later become a staple in the psychoanalytical theories of Sigmund Freud and his daughter, Anna. So Freud was reading Wagner or listening to Wagner? Wagner? Well, yeah. I, I mean, come on. <laughs> I guess everybody I that. Who okay. hasn't listened to Wagner? <laughs> okay. Well, Anna Freud focused her psychoanalytic approach on the treatment of children suffering from mental illness. And during World War II, she established the Hampstead War Nursery, which was a clinic for young victims of the war who were either orphaned or had little or no parental care or attachments because their father was off at war or their you know, mother was working in a factory. Mm-hmm. Well, upon being sent to England to cover the war, William Lindsay White promised his wife that he would find a war orphan they could adopt. Mm-hmm. He found two, a boy and a girl, and then sent them to Anna Freud for evaluation. Ultimately, he chose the girl to adopt, in part because Freud found her brighter than the little boy. Oh, whoa, wow. <laughs> whoa, whoa. So William Lindsay's daughter, which was a war baby, which everybody right, knows, yes. she was evaluated by a Freud, mm-hmm. like the daughter of Sigmund Freud? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The, the daughter of the father. If, a that's, psychoanalyst if that's true. If it yeah. is indeed I don't true. know. Right. And as we know, William Lindsay was the son of William Allen White. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little fishy to me. That's just uh-huh. me. Intriguing. All right, now my turn. In 1923, two wealthy Hollywood financiers constructed the Valhalla Memorial Cemetery in northern Hollywood, California, adorned with a massive Spanish revival arch entitled Portal of the Folded Wings Shrine to Aviation. The cemetery is a pantheon of aviators and today houses the remains of stunt pilots, World War I flying aces, and astronauts. Among the graves is that of aviatrix Amelia Earhart. Born in Atchison, Kansas, Earhart was the first female pilot to cross the Atlantic. In 1929, President Calvin Coolidge awarded Earhart the Distinguished Flying Cross at a White House ceremony in which he invited his favorite Kansas son, William Allen White. <laughs> so there you have it. There you have that's it. The first tidy, option. Isn't it? The first option. <laughs> that's how. That's how real stuff works. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The first option is a war baby and the Freud and Richard Wagner. Or the second option, Amelia Earhart and a cemetery in Northern California <laughs> or Northern Hollywood. Well, I have to say, Merle, that you've you've put together a pretty convincing argument. However, I, it worries me that you're discussing Amelia Earhart's grave. What are you talking about? Well, I, to my knowledge, we still haven't found her. And so the fact that you know where her grave is is pretty surprising. Well, Do you have information you'd like to share with the rest of the world? I don't, you maybe know I, I, don't know, I don't know that maybe I wasn't authorized to put that on there. <laughs> so you're saying mine is false. I'm going to go with Freud and the war baby. That is correct. That's right. All right. Mine is false. In fact, um, but I will say, so there, the, the Valhalla Cemetery does exist, um, and it is kind of a shrine to aviators. Um, but in fact, Amelia Earhart is not buried there. <laughs> I don't know where she's buried. Nobody knows where she's buried. But um, there is a memorial to her there. Um, so, yeah, mine's fictional, a little made up. So Merle says he does not know where I know a lot of things, but I don't know that one. Your secret's safe with us, Merle. Okay. <laughs> Michaela, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. 
For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to the drink of the gods, Pepsi. <laughs> it is a bit of a god theme oh, on this one. It is, yeah. Established in 1898, Pepsi is the world's second largest carbonated soft drink producer. Always striving to outperform rival Coke in new markets, Pepsi has unintentionally become an international symbol of American power. In some developing nations, it's easier to find Pepsi than water. I can attest to that personally. <laughs> so come back in two weeks when we connect William Alawite to Pepsi. Was White the first overweight, white-haired man to be depicted on the side of a soda can? Come back in two weeks to find out. <laughs> That concludes episode 135, Paisley Shawl. If you'd like to see images of Elizabeth Rupert's Paisley Shawl, go to our website, kshs.org. To receive regular updates on the latest events at the museum and see new artifacts, be sure to find Kansas Historical Society on Facebook. In the next episode, curator Blair Tarr explains the theory behind the rather bizarre artwork of a retired woman from Wellsville, Kansas. Elizabeth Grandma Layton didn't pick up art until late in life, but when she did, she painted some rather shocking images. Find out how this grandma redefined retirement and rocked the art world. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Oh,